Welcome to Law Technology Now with host Monica Bay, Editor-in-Chief of ALM's award-winning magazine, Law Technology News. Hear the latest about technology for the legal community. If it's tech, it's a topic right here. Hi, I'm Monica Bay, and welcome to the July edition of Law Technology Now. Uh, We have a terrific show for you today. Our guest is Joshua Engel. But before we turn the stage over to Joshua and have him tell us a little bit about himself, I want to remind you that there are three ways to access Law Technology Now on the ALM site, which is www.lawtechnologynow.com, on the Legal Talk Network site, legaltalknetwork.com, And because we're so cool on the iTunes podcast library. Also want to shout out to our friends at LexisNexis for Firm Manager and thank them again for sponsoring our podcast. Joshua, tell us a little bit about how you got interested in the Fourth Amendment and about your consultancy. And then we're going to dive into some fascinating discussion about the Supreme Court uh, ruling on GPS issues and privacy and several other uh, very, very interesting developments. So, Joshua, take it away. Sure. Well, thank you very much for for having me on today. Uh, I currently work as the Vice President and General Counsel for an investigation and homeland security consulting firm called the Lysurgis Group. Uh, This group consists mostly, in fact, entirely of former law enforcement officers um, who are now working uh, in the private sector, helping out uh, large corporations, uh, institutions, and government agencies. Uh, before that, I served um, as a prosecutor both in Ohio and in Massachusetts and for the uh, Ohio Department of Public Safety. Uh, I've gotten involved in Fourth Amendment issues from providing advice to law enforcement officers, uh, mostly in my government role, uh, about where what they can do with new technology, such as GPS devices or searches of cell phones or the like. And I've written a number of uh, law review articles as well. Oh, terrific. And you're based in Cleveland now? Do I remember that correctly? Uh, We are a Columbus company. Columbus. I knew it started with a C, so we're in good shape. Well, you very, very quickly since uh, you uh, fir- you and I first met have become uh, what we affectionately call the guru of the Fourth Amendment on our EDD update blog. And uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with it, the address is www.eddupdate.com. And it's a blog that we've had for several years now addressing e-discovery issues. And a lot of the topics that you've been talking about are things that may impact e-discovery. We were all pretty excited this week to hear that the Supreme Court has agreed to take a very significant case about the use of GPSs and privacy. Would you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Sure. That case is um, under the name of United States uh, v. Jones. Um, but it's commonly known as um, under the name that it went by in the D.C. Circuit, which was uh, the Maynard, M-A-Y-N-A-R-D, decision. Uh, that is a case involving a, uh, a suspected drug dealer. And in order to uh, build a case against this drug dealer, the police and, and law enforcement officers involved placed a GPS device on his car to allow them to track him over a period of time. And they were able to, using this GPS device, uh, determine his whereabouts and, um, and and build a pretty strong case against him. 
Uh, he challenged this case um, in the trial court and uh, and then won in the Court of Appeals, and now it's in the Supreme Court, on the grounds that putting the GPS device on his car without a warrant violated his Fourth Amendment rights. And for some folks who may not be as up on this area as possible, what are some of the key issues that come up in the Fourth Amendment when you're dealing with privacy cases like this? Well, this was an excellent uh case to describe really the struggles that courts have been having with emerging technology, because the courts, in order to figure out whether there's a Fourth Amendment violation here, are really relying on cases uh, that were developed using old technology. Uh, In this case, or in this instance, the the leading case is a Supreme Court case known as Knox, uh, K-N-O-T-T-S. That was a case involving a uh, suspected uh, methamphetamine lab. And what they did in that case is they placed a a primitive tracking device uh, on some chemicals that the suspects were going to buy and then take to the meth lab and and use to make meth. And this tracking device, it it reminds me uh, very much of the device used in Goldfinger, um, where James Bond was able to follow Goldfinger uh, wherever he went with the device. Uh, it wasn't a GPS-type device, but you needed to be in some proximity to the device to tell what direction to head in to follow it. Uh, the question then, in that case, when they used the device to, to find the, the meth lab, was whether they could use that device without a warrant. And in the Knotts case, the Supreme Court said, no, they did not need to have a warrant. That is because... Um, there was no, they said, reasonable expectation of privacy held by the person. And I should probably step back even another step. Under the Fourth Amendment, when we're talking about whether you need to have a warrant, the real question is whether there's a reasonable expectation of privacy. If a person has a reasonable expectation of privacy, then you need a warrant. If there is no reasonable expectation of privacy, you don't need a warrant. And when we talk about whether there's a reasonable expectation of privacy, there's a subjective component, which is, did the person actually try to keep their information private or expect that their information would be private? And there's an objective side to it, which is, is the information that they wanted to keep private the type of information that society is willing to recognize should be kept private? So when we go back to our tracking device and the meth lab, what they've said is that the tracking device merely allowed the police to observe what they could have observed with their own eye. The police have been following people around and, and conducting surveillance on folks since the beginning of time. And in order to conduct that surveillance, they can do things that enhance their senses, like using binoculars or a telescope or, or a flashlight or something like that. And, and that is perfectly acceptable in the Fourth Amendment because when you drive around on the street, for example, uh, you can be observed by anyone who's out there, and anyone can see where you are. So following that decision in knots, um, most courts have allowed GPS devices to be placed on cars without a warrant. And the reasoning is that the GPS device just does electronically what the police could have done uh, themselves through traditional surveillance, that the car is on the road and it's just recording where it's traveling on the road, uh, where it could be seen by practically anybody, And by doing this, they haven't violated anyone's expectation of privacy. It's interesting that you were talking about the evolution of of tech and how a lot of the cases are are being determined now uh, where 
the fundamental or the precedent uh, was constructed when we didn't even have GPS or cell phones or whatever. And you wrote on the blog about a fascinating case that deals with the concept of, of searches incident to arrest. And tell us the story about the soccer mom and what the ramifications of her experience were. Sure. Um, but before we get into that, one of the themes we have is that when you're talking about GPS or um, with, with the soccer mom and, and the implications of that case, when you start talking about uh, cell phones and, and smartphones, what we're really talking about is when the Supreme Court applies these old cases with old technology, does it account for what the new technology can do? And, um, and, and, and let me illustrate that with the GPS example first. Um, when you're talking about GPS, you are potentially using a technology that allows the police to do more than they could do with traditional surveillance. Uh, you know, it would take a, a huge number of police officers dedicating a huge number of hours um, to assemble the type of data that the GPS device allows them to assemble. Um, the other thing that when we're talking about new technology is when you have this tremendous amount of data, it allows for aggregation of data. Um, and aggregation of data, not only in the person you're looking at, but the other people's lives as well. And when you have this aggregation of data, you could then start to see patterns in people's lives. And when you start to see patterns in people's lives, you can start to draw inferences about what's going on in their lives as well. For example, if you know, if you see someone every Tuesday at three o'clock is on a street corner, a certain street corner, and you also know that on that certain street corner is a psychiatrist's office, you may start to infer that they're visiting the psychiatrist for mental health problems on a regular basis. So when we're talking about then the, the, the soccer mom, what we're talking about is the implications of cell phone search cases. And in that case, when, when we're dealing with the soccer mom, we're talking about a, um, a relatively old Supreme Court case that said that people can be arrested and, and taken off to the jail for, for relatively minor offenses. And then the soccer mom, I think it was for not having her kids in a seatbelt or something like that. Um, which, when the Supreme Court first drafts these precedents, it seems like a, a, a relatively uh, minor inconvenience to, to the person to, to be taken off to jail and, and maybe forced to postpone. But now, when you combine that with an old rule such as the search incident to arrest doctrine, which allows the police to conduct a search of the person in the area in their immediate control when they're arrested, uh, you start to raise all sorts of information when the person has in their possession, say, an iPhone or an Android device and, and now has on that all of their emails, all of their calendars, all of their contacts, all of their text messages, pretty much everything about their life may be contained in that device. And even if they're arrested on a minor offense, if you apply this search incident to arrest doctrine to the electronic devices, they may then be able to uh, uncover a large amount of information about this person. And that raises a huge, huge worry for law firms. We did a cover story uh, earlier this year about the consumerization of 
of uh, technology into law firms and how big law in particular is finally accepting phones like the iPhone, which has cameras and everything else. And one of the big concerns for the law firms is what happens if soccer mom, you know, talks back to the police guy and ends up in jail for what for an offense that was a $50 fine and they take her cell phone and on that cell phone is confidential client information. Let's say she's a lawyer. Let's say she's a paralegal at the firm. This has huge ramifications for security issues. We we also recently did a story about the insider trading scandal that rocked several law firms. And this is another example where if law firms are trying to provide mobility tools to their personnel, how do they how do they prevent the opportunity that, you know, because some woman doesn't have her seatbelt on or guy, all of a sudden all the law firm's confidential uh, information could be in the hands of police. This is a big issue for the law firms. Are you are you hearing more about that? I'm I'm hearing a lot of questions about that. Um, we're we're hearing a lot of questions about um, cloud computing, and when you know electronic uh, mail, for example, that's stored um, by Google or Yahoo or, or someone like that uh, can be accessed by by law enforcement. Um, yeah, there was a case uh, recently in Ohio about. Um, uh, Enzite, which most people may remember is the um, the smiling Bob, natural male enhancement guy on, on TV all the time. Oh, right. And one of the ways the government was able to build that case was by accessing the emails of the property owners, I'm sorry, of the company owners um, that they stored on external service providers. So the emails were, were out there on in the cloud, so to speak, and the government was able to obtain those emails uh, and many times without the knowledge of the person who was writing them and, and was able to obtain even emails that were deleted. And so the question then became was, is the government able to do that without a warrant? Now, the Sixth Circuit opinion that was, that was issued uh, a little while ago said that, no, the government does need a warrant in order to get that information. And the analogy they used was that it's like sending a letter through the mail, where when you send a letter through the mail, even though you're putting that letter in the hands of a third party, no one expects that the third party is going to open up the envelope and read what's inside. The third party can see what's on the outside of your envelope, can see the address, the to, the from, the postmark, that information. But the contents of your communication, even though it's in the hands of a third party, is... um, is still conf- is still uh, subject to privacy protections, and therefore you, the government needs a warrant before it can obtain that information. And we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our sponsor, firm manager from LexisNexis, and then we'll be back with Joshua Engel. And we're going to talk more about some of the uh, concerns about Big Brother and the government getting too much access to our data. We'll be right back. Legal Talk Network has been producing award-winning legal podcasts since 2005. Subscribe to our RSS feed and start downloading today. It's free. Thanks for tuning into our program today. We want to let you know about something extraordinary happening in the legal industry. 
Right now, hundreds of independent attorneys just like yourself are working to bring a very special product to market. These attorneys are part of a development program at LexisNexis, and they are working under NDA on a brand new application that will change the way you run your practice. This solution, LexisNexis Firm Manager, is a web-based, highly secure application operating in SAS 70 Type 2 attested data centers. If you are interested in test driving LexisNexis Firm Manager at no charge, or to learn more, visit www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. Need to reach lawyers on the go? Try marketing with new media here on Legal Talk Network. We can start the conversation for you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and shoot us an email or call us at 781-551-9960. If you like listening to Law Technology Now, you might also like the podcast, The Kennedy Mile Report on LegalTalkNetwork.com. And this is Monica Bay, Editor-in-Chief of Law Technology News, and we are here today with the fabulous Josh Engel, and we're talking about the Fourth Amendment. And as I mentioned before, Josh, you've become the guru of our e-discovery and compliance blog. Um, ju- just recently, uh, one of our colleagues, Al Barsaccini, posted about uh, a new concern that uh, with Microsoft buying Skype, apparently there is an organization, and I'm going to forget the acronym, I think it's it's something like a CLIA or CLIA or something like that, uh, that allows the government to access some online records records. Um, for police work. Uh, we were just chatting about that. Any sense of any trends, Joshua, that you're seeing that folks, especially in protecting their client confidentiality, should be aware of? Well, I think there's two things that people need to be aware of in, in protecting their client confidentiality. One is that the the government, um, we believe, has access to techniques and information that we may not be aware of. And, and the, the story is still developing on sort of the Skype monitoring. But it came out uh, recently in the debate about the iPhone uh, location tracking issue. Um, and, and as people may recall, it became a big uh, semi-scandal that the iPhones were recording where people were and storing that data on people's computers for a long period of time. And hidden in some of the news reports about that was some suggestion that the government knew about this for some time and, and that some of the forensic examiners working for the government had been extracting some of that location data uh, on subjects of their investigations uh, for, for some time and just keeping quiet about it. So the, the, the first point, I think, is, is that people need to be um, cautious that by the time it hits the news, it might be too late. This may be something that's been going on for a while. I think you're absolutely right. And in fact, uh, our other colleague, Brendan McKenna, uh, had wrote about how Facebook has put a default for uh, what they call, uh, it's a tag function where they do facial recognition. So let's say you've been, you have several people on your site that you, you know, you're a 20 year old and you party a lot. And one of the other folks will put up other shots and that they can recognize through facial recognition and then suggest to you that you might want to tag these people as well, which has some of the conspiracy theorists also uh, getting very queasy. 
book has been a tremendous benefit to, to law enforcement. Um, if for no other reason than, than a number of criminals have, have boasted about their crimes on their Facebook pages, <laughs> uh, and, and, and therefore making it very easy for law enforcement to find that. Um, where things start to get a little um, bit more interesting is when people post anonymously. Um, and um, people like to post anonymously, for example, on Twitter and exchange information on Twitter. And this became an issue with WikiLeaks investigation, where the government uh, wanted to obtain information, account information about various people involved in that uh, information and um, some anonymous users who they think were involved in exchanging um, information through Twitter uh, that led to the WikiLeaks uh, disclosures. Where that became um, a matter of constitutional concern is when you have First Amendment issues, which is people have a right at times to keep their identity secret or anonymous. And if the government is going to be or is able to easily obtain identifying information about what people post online, that may have a chilling effect on on people's willingness to post online or follow people on Twitter or join groups on Facebook. Um, and, and this is an area of the law that's just starting to develop, but I, I suspect we're going to see more of it going forward as people raise First Amendment concerns to government efforts to obtain identifying information. Um, but it really does point to the challenge that, that attorneys um, and 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 law, people advising law enforcement and others have in this area, which is that, as I mentioned before, the courts are really applying old rules to to new technology. Uh, for example, when we were talking about cell phones, and you talk about the original reason that you can search a person when you arrest them, uh, the, the Supreme Court in their original cases said you should do this because you're worried that the person may have a weapon on them, um, and so you have officer safety concerns. Or if they have some piece of evidence hidden in their pocket, they may try to destroy it before the police could use that. Uh, and as you extend that line of thinking, it got extended to containers or, or cigarette pouches that people held in their pockets, and then to wallets um, and purses and various documents that people had, um, the, the first electronic devices to be subject to this were pagers. Um, but the doctrine kept creeping further and further away from that original purpose um, for allowing searches incident to arrest. And so at some point, courts, um, like the Ohio Supreme Court in a uh, recent decision, have said, no, we're not going to allow you to extend that doctrine any bit fur- any further uh, because of the difference between electronic devices and what's going on. But many courts still continue to apply those old rules, and so it is very unpredictable at the moment um, where courts are going to go on these things. And so when you try to give advice to clients uh, about what is safe and what isn't safe, whether they can you know, have their lawyers using iPhones or, or not, the, the answers aren't as cut and dry as, as many clients would like them to be. If there was one piece of advice that you would want to give, particularly to big law, which I think is very worried about the uh, client confidentiality, what would it be? Encryption. Um, when documents, emails, um, other things, if they're encrypted, then you at least have some time um, to fight over it. That doesn't guarantee that the information is going to be um, 
it's secret at all time. But if someone gets a um, iPhone and from someone who's arrested and the documents that might be emailed or stored on the iPhone are encrypted, at least, you know, the police can't access it right away. And there would have to be some uh, negotiations or even litigation about whether that encryption key would have to be provided or not. Um, but at least it provides an initial layer of protection for that. It also would seem to me that it, one of the themes that came out of our initial article on the consumerization of of tech was the idea that a lot of the big firms are now willing to consider having these consumer smartphones because of the ability to remotely wipe them clean, which might be an arguable tactic to take, but on the other hand, uh, uh, is an, could be an effective way to protect client uh, uh, confidentialities. It could be, although I'd be very hesitant to advise people to, to, to do that. Um, for two reasons. One, you, you certainly would never want to be accused of trying to de- of destroying evidence. Right. If the police have right. the phone and you wipe it, you, you might be accused of, of obstructing justice or, exactly. um, or, or something like that. The, the other, though, thing is one of the arguments made um, to allow police to search a cell phone when they arrest someone is that the information could be deleted very quickly. Um, the first cases that came up dealt with uh, call logs, and the police wanted to look at the call logs, and the phones that they were involved in had call logs that only kept the most recent, say, 100 calls or something like that. So if they didn't check the call log right away, new calls would come in and, and would force the old calls out. So if firms start adopting or people start adopting um, better ability to wipe phones remotely, and in wiping phones remotely aren't storing the data somewhere else, um, the police then have a strong argument under what we call exigent circumstances that if they don't search the phone right away, the data might all disappear, and so that's why we have to do it now. Right. I, I suspect that that uh, tool is more effective for when lawyers accidentally leave their uh, devices on uh airport seats or cabs. So please don't think our wonderful listeners that I'm suggesting any 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 inappropriate behavior on the part of our wonderful law firms. Which brings us, unfortunately, to the end of the program. Joshua, it's been an absolute delight to talk with you today. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way to contact you? Well, my information uh, probably can be found on our webpage, which is www.lysurgisgroup.net. And that's spelled L-Y-C-U-R-G-U-S-G-R-O-U-P dot net. Uh, And you can find my email and phone number information on there. And you can also read his posts very frequently on the EDD Update blog, www.eddupdate.com. And it's my happy duty to do my thank yous. A special thank out in New York to Jill Windward and to David Jasper of ALM. And in Boston to Luann Reeves, Scott Hess, Mike Hockman, Kate Kenny, and intern Leo Linden at the Legal Talk Network. Again, you can find us in three places at www.lawtechnologynow.com for the ALM site, at www.legaltalknetwork.com for the Legal Talk Network site, and on iTunes. We will see you in August. I'm Monica Bay, and remember, there's no crying in baseball or technology. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Law Technology Now is produced by the broadcast professionals at the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening. Join Monica Bay for next month's podcast on the technology issues affecting the legal profession today.